Good evening, everyone. Um, we've now got our first Bible reading for tonight, which is from Acts chapter 9, verses 1 to 16. So starting from Acts 9. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now, get up and go into the city and you'll be told what you must do. The men travelling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground and when he opened his eyes he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. In Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias. Yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go into the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And he has come here with authority from the chief priests to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, Go, this man is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and their kings and before the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. This is the end of the reading. And you can find that in your puba. Okay. Now I rejoice in what was suffered for you, and I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's affliction, afflictions for the sake of his body, which is the church. I have become its servant by the commission God gave me to present to you the word of God in its fullness, the mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations, but is now disclosed to the saints. To them God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. We proclaim him, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom, so that we may present everyone perfect in Christ. To this end I labour, struggling with all his energy, uh, which so powerfully works in me. I want you to know how much I am struggling for you, and for those at Laodicea, and for all who have not met me personally. My promise is that they may be encouraged in heart and united in love, so that they may have the full riches of complete understanding, in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I tell you this so that no one may may deceive you by fine-sounding arguments. For though I am absent from you in body, I am present with you in spirit, 
and delight to see how orderly you are and how firm your faith is in Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Good evening. Sorry, right, I was a little bit nervous for a while there, but I feel better now. It'd be really helpful if you had that part of the Bible open in front of you. We're going to work pretty closely with the verses tonight, and there's lots of uh, challenging things in it, so it'd be great if you could have a Bible open in front of you. I would love to pray one more time, and then we'll consider this part of God's Word together. Let's pray again. Our Heavenly Father, we do pray, would you please... Uh, reveal yourself to us tonight by your word. Please remind us that you are a real God with a real word for our real lives. Please help us not hide behind pretense. Our Father, would you please convict us again of the wonder of your Son that we might live fully for him and we pray these things for his glory. Amen. Uh, I don't know about you, Uh, But I think there are few things more convincing than a person who is fully convinced. Few things more persuading than a person who themselves is persuaded. Uh, You you see it on the TV ads. The, The product is announced. The product is explained. And then the testimonials begin. I used to think I could never have rock-hard abs and a stomach like a washboard, but then I discovered the Abinator 2000. It really works. um, My oven had always been the shame of my life. (laughs) But then I discovered the Ovenator 2000. It really works. Uh, Now, if you're anything like me, you have a a fair measure of scepticism, if you couldn't pick the tone, uh, from the kind of we're trying to sell you something kind of testimonials. But you get the point, don't you? Why are we introduced introduced to Mr. and Mrs. Satisfied Customer? Because the advertisers understand that there are few things more convincing than a person who is convinced, few things more persuading than a person who themselves are persuaded. Famous Christian author John Stott wrote, There's a strangely fascinating power exerted by those who are utterly sincere. Such unbelievers attract, such believers attract unbelievers. As with the case of David Hume, the 18th century British philosopher, and the race is on. I'm sure you're massively unhelpful to mum and dad if I commentate at this point. <laughs> now, we can do this, mum and dad, but are you happy with him there? Yeah, we're happy to roll. Here we go. The game is on. You watch me craftily work this into the sermon. <laughs> I think dad is utterly convinced. There you go, how's that? Back to John Stott. He was saying there's a strangely fascinating power exerted by those who are utterly sincere. Do you remember just a few moments ago? Uh, Such believers attract unbelievers, he says. The case of David Hume, a really famous 18th century philosopher who rejected historic Christianity. And the story goes that a friend saw him once hurrying down the streets of London and asked him, where are you going? His reply, he was going to hear George Whitfield preach. 
Surely, the friend says in astonishment, you don't believe what Whitfield preaches, do you? No, I don't, he said. But I know he does, and so I want to hear him. There are a few things more convincing than a person who is convinced. I want to say it's even more true when that conviction uh, that conviction comes at a cost to the person convinced, when that conviction comes with care, not for themselves, but for you. I wonder as you look back over your life if you can identify a person like that. Be they a pastor, a parent, a friend, someone convinced of something, anything, perhaps the gospel of the Lord Jesus, someone who remained convinced even when it cost them, someone who in their conviction was working for your care. Uh, Erica, my wife, Erica, went to a memorial service last week uh, for a woman named Bronwyn Chin. Uh, She was a woman just a little older than me, uh, mother of four, a wife of my boss, who spent the last three years dying slowly of cancer. But in that time, her conviction never wavered. She wrote again and again on Facebook and articles that ended up in magazines of the gift of cancer. She constantly reminded us of the goodness of God. She reminded us of the goodness of God, the glory of Jesus. If anything, through those three years, her conviction grew And she spent herself in her care of her husband, her children and us. Last week the memorial service was held in the auditorium that filled that had 1,200 seats. There weren't enough seats for the people in the room. Few things are more convincing than a person who is convinced. Especially when it comes at cost to themselves and at their care for you. As we come to this next section in Paul's letter to the Colossians, I take it Paul wants the Colossians to see his conviction from the inside out. He wants the Colossians to see what it cost him for them. He wants them to see his ministry. You'll see this on your outlines if you've got them. His ministry, his message and his motives are all from God and all for them. Paul says to the Colossians, his is a God-given ministry one of serving God's word and serving God's people, making the word of God fully known that the people of God might be fully mature. You see it in the last verse from last week. Verse 23, do you see it? This is the gospel, the same one we saw in our video clip. This is the gospel that you heard has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. Then he continues this week, verse 24, next, very next verse, verse 24. Now I rejoice in what was suffered for you, and I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions. And we'll come back to that one. For the sake of his body, which is the church, here it is, I have become its servant by the commission God gave me. Remember Jesus said, you cannot serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other. We devoted to the one and despise the other. It seems here Paul disagrees respectfully, I'm sure. Does he not? Verse 23, you saw it, a servant of God's word. Verse 24, a servant of God's people. Master 1, the gospel of Jesus. 
master to the people of Jesus. And why? Because Paul's convinced that master of all is the person of Jesus. And Paul knows that to serve his master is to serve his gospel. To serve his master is to serve his people. We had a speaker come once uh, when I was studying at Bible college and he got stuck into the particular Christian culture that I was a part of and, and in particular in the way we would constantly define ourselves by the gospel. You say you're gospel people, he said, with gospel priorities and gospel plans, making gospel decisions for your gospel lives. And we would never say all that in one sentence, but that was the kind of thing we would say. Surely you'd be better saying you are Jesus people. With Jesus' priorities, Jesus' plans, making Jesus' decisions. After all, they made the bracelet WWJD, not WWGD. Haven't you got your focus all wrong? At the time, I found that a little unsettling. Maybe I... The answer was no. Focus wasn't wrong to be focused on the gospel, serving the gospel. Great reformer John Calvin wrote, Christ comes to us clothed in his gospel. So if you want to know Jesus truly, fully, you've got to know the gospel truly, fully. If you want to serve Jesus truly, fully, you've got to serve his gospel with everything you have in all of your decisions with your time, your money, and anything else. That's how we serve Jesus, by serving his gospel. And so that's what Paul does. He serves God's word, God's gospel, and he serves God's people. Indeed, he serves God's people by serving God's gospel, by submitting to it, living for it. See verse 25? Speaking of the church, that, that is God's people gathered, like we have here tonight, Paul says, I have become its servant by the commission God gave me, to present to you the word of God in its fullness, serving God's word and so serving God's people. Verse 28. Him we proclaim, admonishing, that is, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom. Why? So that we may present everyone perfect, that is, complete, if you like, fully mature in Christ. In the ministry we have on campus at Deacon, we have this slogan to remind ourselves what our core business on campus is. Um, We didn't make it up. We heard it from someone else. We liked it, so we stole it. That's what good Christian ministry is all about. Uh, It's called the three Ps. What Ps are they? They are prayer, proclamation, people. What's the core business of the mission of Christ on campus? It's prayerful, Proclamation to people. Why is that core business? Because that's the core business of every ministry. Because that is how God is saving and changing the world. Verse 28, that's the path to perfection, maturity in him. See, Paul is at pains to show these Colossians that his is a God-given ministry that he has given himself to fully as he suffers Christ's sufferings in God's plan and power. I mean, you can imagine, can't you, that for the Colossians, it must have seemed just a little bit odd. 
I mean, that same man who just written the first half, chapter Colossians chapter 1, of how the gospel is conquering the world. And the same man who just written the second half, Colossians chapter 1, the gospel is the gospel of Jesus, creator, saviour, lord of the world. That man, as he writes, where is he? He's locked up and he's in chains, in prison. You've got to hear what he's saying. He's claiming a winning gospel. He's claiming a winning Lord. And there he is, to be fair, the Apostle Paul, living like a loser. Maybe the Colossians would ask themselves, maybe they want to ask Paul. Having any second thoughts there, Paul, my friend? Doubting your deliverance? Which Paul says, not at all. See verse 24, verse 24. Now I rejoice in what was suffered for you. I take it by him. And I fill up in my flesh what's still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions. Or down there, chapter 2, verse 1. I want you to know, I'm not ashamed of this, not hiding this anymore. I want you to know how hard I am struggling, literally agonizing. I suspect in prayer and in his preaching it. For you, for those at Laodicea, and for all who have not met me personally. And guess what? That includes us, unless you've met Paul personally, and for which I have my doubts. I'm not ashamed of these chains, Paul says. I rejoice. I'm not put off by these hardships, says Paul, and neither should you be. The path of the Saviour was always going to be the path of those who followed the Saviour. For the Saviour, first come the sufferings and then comes the glory. And for those who follow him, guess what? First comes the sufferings, then comes the glory. And in particular, that's true for Paul. As God said to Ananias at Paul's conversion, do you remember from Acts chapter 9? Go... This man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. You know, as you read Acts 9 and then Colossians chapter 1 and kind of hold them together, there's there's this fascinating reversal. I wonder if you notice. This man who once persecuted God's people and so persecuted Jesus, do you remember? Jesus said, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Not Saul, Saul, why do you persecute them? He's persecuting Jesus. This man who was persecuting God's people and so persecuting God's son now suffers for God's son as he suffers for God's people. Saul's life is completely turned upside down as it is for anyone who comes under the lordship of Jesus. Once a hunter of God's people, now a herald of God's word. Do you see, it's in that way that he fills up what is lacking in regard to Christ's affliction. That's the trouble verse, isn't it? Christians in the room, a little nervous about some verses here. That's the verse I think we get nervous about. I mean, after all, what does Paul mean? Does Paul mean that he's somehow adding to the saving sufferings of Christ. I'm a little uncomfortable with that. 
Is he trying to say that Jesus' death was inadequate? Insufficient? Left just a little bit more to do. Thanks very much, Paul. Of course, it can't be that, can it? I mean, even Colossians, it can't be that. After all, Paul's just described the the saving of us by the suffering of Jesus in, in some of the biggest, most comprehensive, cosmic language of all the Bible. If you flick back a few verses, chapter 1, verse 20, do you see what it said? It speaks of him reconciling to himself, not even just us, but all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Well, then verse 22, but now he has reconciled you, finished, done, complete, by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish, free from accusation. So I ask again, does it look like Jesus thinking, I need a little help here? Does it look like Jesus left just a little bit more to do? The answer you reply back is, of course not. We might try that together. One, two, three. Of course not. Next time with enthusiasm, I'm sure. So what's Paul talking about? What he's talking about, I think, is about his particular role in seeing Christ's affliction made known to the world. See, what is it that's lacking in Christ's afflictions? It's all the world hearing about them. All those God has chosen trusting in them. All those who are his people building their life upon them. That's what's lacking. And that's what Paul suffers to see fulfilled. That's Paul's joyful role in God's plan and in God's power. You see verse 25 again? I have become its servant by the commission God gave me. And we saw it, Acts chapter 9. Well, down there, verse 29, to this end I labor, struggling with all his energy so powerfully works in me. See, forget that Aussie assumption Paul's saying, and paraphrase, roundabout, uh, the us-to-God-style religion, you know, the assumption. Or forget that Aussie error that any movement between us and God starts with us and goes to him. No, my ministry, Paul says, begins with God. My ministry, Paul says, continues with God. His plan, his power, Paul says. A God-given ministry and a God-given message. Or perhaps it would be better to say a God-given mystery. Do you see there, chapter 1, verse 26? The mystery kept hidden. Chapter 2, verse 2, the mystery of God. Now, we hear the word, a mystery, and what do we think? I wait for dramatic effect, and I tell you, I asked some students on campus exact same questions, and here's what they said. A mystery is something you can't fully know. Something beyond your mental reach. A puzzle you need to solve, but, well, let's face it, you cannot be solved. That's what we think, isn't it? When we think of mystery. See, that's not what Paul means here. The mystery of God, it's not something you cannot know. It's just something you didn't know or or you don't know. 
It's not a puzzle that we need to solve. It's a secret. That's the better word for mystery here. If they were your Bibles, put a line through it and put secret. They're not your Bibles, so don't write in them. It's a secret that we need to be told. Secret, see there verse 26? That's been kept hidden for ages, generations, but is now disclosed, because that's what you do with secrets, to the saints. It's been revealed to God's people. Verse 27, to them God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches, this is one cool secret, of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. See, most Saturday mornings, our family tries to do something fun. We call it family day, but we should call it fun day or half fun day. Maybe because the fun usually ends by midday. Anyway, most Saturday mornings, our kids try to guess what the fun will be. It's a mystery to them, a secret to them. Eric and I have a plan for funness, or we're developing one quickly, depending on the Saturday, but the kids don't know what it is. And they won't know what it is until we disclose it to them. It's not that's beyond their understanding. They're pretty smart kids. Take after their good mother. But it's just that it's our plan. And until we tell them, they don't know. And see, that's what Paul's speaking of here. See, to read your Old Testaments, as the Jews lived their Old Testaments, it was clear that God had a plan. A plan to bring his holy self together with his sinful people. Again and again, he says, do you remember? I will be your God. You will be my people. Not just you Jews, but you Gentiles too, you non-Jews. If you don't know, that's everyone else. And, And the question is, the question you're supposed to be asking all the way through the Old Testament is how? How could he do it when we keep messing it up? What is your secret, God? And then he tells us on the page of the New Testament, he shows us in the pages of history, his secret that everyone needs to know is Christ for you, even you Gentiles. Christ in you. Even you believing Gentiles, Christ, our hope of glory, he says. And we want to make sure this is not just an, oh, shucks, I do hope Sydney wins yet another premiership kind of hope. But the ironclad guarantee, unfailing promise of God kind of hope for future glory. So when I was a tad younger than I am now, there was a band, I think they only had one or two hits, called the Urban Cookie Collection. It wasn't a cool name. It actually seemed like a cool name back then, anyway. And they had a song called, I Have the Key, I Have the Secret. And the complete lyrics of the song were, I have the key, I have the secret. I have the key to another way. Repeat, techno beat. And see, Paul wants to say, so do I. And in fact, Paul wants to say, so do you. That's what Paul wants to say. If you have Christ, it's Christ, chapter 2, verse 3, in whom are hidden all, listen to the language, chapter 2, verse 3, it's in Christ in whom are hidden all, there are none left, all the treasures of wisdom 
and knowledge. One of my old Bible college lecturers, the principal, used to say, what the philosophers have sought down through the centuries, what ordinary people like you and I have longed for, real wisdom for real life, it's all to be found in Christ. And so it goes without saying, doesn't it? You can never make too much of Christ. And you can never know too much of Christ as you read his word from cover to cover and then back to the start again. See, that's why Paul's motive, his God-given motive is to point us to Christ and to keep us in Christ. See it there, chapter 2, verse 2? My goal. Why have you been speaking to us, Paul? My goal is that they may be encouraged in heart. That is, given comfort, given courage as you face the day tomorrow at school or at work. And united in love together under Christ, that they may have the full riches of complete understanding. It's the idea of deep confidence that comes from really knowing Jesus in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I tell you this, so that no one may deceive you by fine-sounding arguments. And after all, they're the ones that are going to deceive us most, isn't it? No one's persuaded by unpersuasive words. It's the persuasive ones that get you, be they in the latest Christian book or so-called religious documentary on the lips of anything or anyone else who would try to tell you that you need more than Christ to be truly Christian. And so as Paul will go on to say the very next verses, which we get to next week, so then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live in him and only in him. And I want to say on behalf of lots of us here, if you're here tonight and you haven't received Christ Jesus as Lord, with full conviction, genuine care of those around you, and it costs if it would take that, we ask that you would receive Christ Jesus as Lord. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this wonderful part of the Bible where you show us Paul's heart laid bare and his ministry laid open. We thank you that his ministry which has been passed on to us was given by you. We thank you that his message passed on to us was given by you. We thank that his motive for the Colossians is your motive for us, that we would know Jesus, love Jesus, stick with Jesus, never be tempted to go somewhere else, to think that there's more, something better to know. We pray, our Heavenly Father, that we would spend lots of good time knowing Jesus well, that we would speak of him often, pray to him often. It's in his name we pray. Amen.